Maureen of Chicago. I'm Megan, daughter of Michael and Lisa. And, and we, we are, are burdened with glorious, glorious podcast. Welcome back to the show where we talk about our favorite trickster god Loki, now streaming on Disney Plus. And it's been a while uh, since we've recorded one of these, and a lot has happened since then. Uh, <laughs> I just got back from Dragon Con. Well, not just just got back, but it's the most recent con I've been to, and. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I cosplayed as Sylvie and passed out uh, our business cards, which I made. Uh, went as passed it out to as many Lokis as I could. And let me tell you, if there was an unofficial mascot for Dragon Con twenty twenty one, it would undoubtedly be Loki Gator. So our transcriptionist Jess, who is also uh, my oldest friend, um. You know, Jess isn't even really into this other than, like, enjoying it by proxy through us, apparently. But um, she's going as Gator Loki for Halloween. <laughs> and, the, and, the out, and the costume is getting more elaborate every time I hear about it. <laughs> oh. I, I, I really thought that this was going to be, like, a plush alligator onesie. And now it's, like, there's going to be, like, a fake gator skin jacket. There's, like, on top of the onesie little you know the loki horns i mean it, it sounds like this is getting really elaborate yeah so at the uh designated loki uh cosplay photo shoot on i think it was yeah it was either a friday or saturday my mind's drawing a blank but uh there was a special section just for all the loki gator cosplayers and what was absolutely hysterical was one of them came in his own uh kiddie pool and there was another section where people just placed down like uh, their prop versions of the gator. So there was like a lot oh of stuff. There's a lot of stuffed animal alligators with the gold horns, but someone actually made actually just had like a pair of green Crocs with a special miniature gold horns on it. That was oh my laid god. Down. <laughs> and not to mention just all the Loki cosplayers, uh, the Loki Gator cosplayers. But there were just, like, so much Loki Gator merchandise. I, like, I saw, like, stuffed animals. I saw, like, I think, like, money jars that were, like, had, like, uh, plush set dressing on them. And it was just so terrific just, like, to have all these people, like, be united in their love for this character who barely lasted one episode. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, you know what? You say barely lasted as though he's not still out there. Uh... Yeah, Watching. we haven't seen the last of him. <laughs> oh, so I think we should mention, uh, there was a very pleasant surprise, I never would have guessed, but uh, we're kind of popular now, aren't we? Oh, yeah. I, I don't know where you people came from or how you found us, but um, I got an email with some, uh, with, like, some podcast statistics in it, and apparently we are in the top 100 of after shows in the UK. Hey. <laughs> yeah, I I had no idea that we even had much of a listenership over there. I bet um, it's all the all Gary of... Newman references. <laughs> 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 that has to be it? <laughs> oh my god. Well, and you know, actually, that reminds me. Um, something else that I realized, it, the initial wave of this happened a while ago, and I just, I always forgot to mention it. 
on the show, but it actually has, like, this has now been, like, a full story at this point. So you might remember that in our very first episode, we referenced Jesus Christ Superstar, and it wasn't even one of our weird non-sequitur references that happen on here so often. It was, you know, specifically talking about its themes about, like, fate and predestination and all that. And I mentioned that my friend Gibson who is the future co-host of A Good Nightmare Comes So Rarely, which, by the way, Maureen is joining the team on. Yes, that's also a new development, and I am yeah, honored to take part in this new endeavor. Yeah, it's it, there's there's been a lot that's happened in the last few weeks. Um, so, but to, sorry, just to, um, to circle back a little bit. So, Gibson runs JesusChristSuperstarZone.com, which is basically the only Jesus Christ Superstar reference you will ever need until Gibson gets to write his book about it. But it also has on there a ticket portal to different productions which aren't really happening right now because of the pandemic, but since it's easier to get a concert tour going up again, there was recently a tour that um, featured uh, Ted Neely and Yvonne Elliman, who were Jesus and Mary Magdalene in um, the film, Yvonne Elliman was also Mary Magdalene on the original concept album on Broadway. And the point is, is that I, I don't know what kind of overlap we apparently have, but I guess we're not the only ones around here who like Jesus Christ Superstar because you guys apparently managed to actually drive that concert into profit. How about that? <laughs> I don't know how many of you out there are actually still into this, but I, I know that there's enough of you that you made your presence very known. One of the main reasons that we're able to link at least some of the concert ticket activity to our podcast is because apparently a whole bunch of you decided to join the Jesus Christ Superstar Zone Facebook group. So, you know, thank you as well for doing that. Gibson said that he looked at a number of your profiles and saw Loki-related content. So there you go. But, um... Anyway, Gibson actually went to that concert, I believe he said it was yesterday, but, um, you know, he's, he's actually reasonably acquainted with Ted Neely, and Ted Neely says thanks, you guys. <laughs> we can abuse you, this power so much. <laughs> we, we literally have Jesus on our side. <laughs> um, and apparently he thanked us as well, but, you know, it's kind of one of those things where it's, you know, we couldn't have done it without you, the fans. Mm -hmm. Oh, so before we get into our main topic, I feel like I have to mention this because technically it is an appearance by Loki in the MCU, or at least a Loki. Uh, I'm kind of mad that I was so sure I could just like ignore the Hawkeye series or just like breeze by it. And then the trailer came. <laughs> And it gave us uh, a Captain America musical, and uh, there was a scene, it lasted exactly two seconds, but it's basically the Avengers on Broadway, and Thor and Loki are to the left side, and I'm, I have no choice but to see this now. Although, honestly, why do they have to make an entire series about Hawkeye when I would literally pay more money just to have, like, an entire, like, six-episode series that's just the Captain America musical. 
Because I tell you what, folks, there is no way in hell the Captain America musical could be any worse than Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, okay? You know, the thing is, is that I think that this might even be an in-joke, because I'm almost certain that there was this whole publicity thing in, like, I want to say the 70s or 80s, where they were going to do a Captain America musical, and they were actually doing a talent search for a little girl, because I guess they were going to give him a new sidekick who was a little girl. Oh. And I guess just nothing ever came of it, or, like, they, or like the project ended up being canceled, and it's like, I, I wonder who won. I, I feel <laughs> like this had to have been in, like, the late 70s, early 80s. It seems, it kind of seems like the sort of thing that would happen pretty, almost organically, after, like, you know, the whole Animania. Oh, yeah, definitely. Time. And also, um, there is actually a very charming Superman musical that it, it wasn't it wasn't a big hit, but um, it did end up eventually getting made into a TV special. The album is actually very easy to find. It's called It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman. Um, really, the only thing about it that uh, that feels a little off, I guess, is there's a character in there who absolutely could have been Lex Luthor, who isn't. Um, he's They just kind of made him a generic mad scientist instead. It's it's definitely charming. It does have a number of what you consider OCs in there. Um, one of the main characters is actually a secretary at the Daily Planet, who, from what I understand, has a mild crush on Clark Kent, but of course he's associated with, with Lois the whole time. And if you remember that You've Got Possibilities song that used to be on the Pillsbury Biscuit commercials, that came from the Superman musical. Oh my god, I never would have guessed. Yeah, okay. no, that's, that's actually the, the cute secretary character. Basically, she has, she has no idea that this is Superman, but she's, you know, flirting with Clark, trying to basic, you know, it's almost like a popular, before popular existed type scene and of course you know I, I think the gag is supposed to be that you know no don't take my glasses off you'll see I'm Superman you know that sort of thing um but you know but I think that because that did get made into a reasonably successful TV special even though the musical itself had was like a middling Broadway success it was really just it did well enough just to produce the album essentially so uh, as a mind-blowing Segway to cross promotion. How does it compare to the Batman musical? <laughs> uh, you know what? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. It the Superman musical is it's a charming old fashioned musical comedy that feels very much a product of the late sixties. It's you know I I think you know I think they actually did like one of those city center encores concerts of it. That apparently did pretty well. I apparently they got Leah Delaria to play the not Lex Luthor character, which is great. Like that—that that is an excellent use of a Leah Delaria. <laughs> um, but yeah, okay. The Batman musical that Maureen mentioned was an unproduced uh, Jim Steinman production, which I feel like should say just about everything. <laughs> um, you can find a whole bunch of the demos online. The most fascinating thing about it is that it includes a major plot point that I have never seen in any other piece of Batman media except for the TV show Gotham, and it almost makes me wonder if this is where they got that idea. 
And that's the idea that a very young Selena Kyle also witnessed Thomas and Martha Wayne's murder, and that's a big part of why she ended up Catwoman. Because that was also a major, that was a major detail on Gotham before it went completely cuckoo bananas. So besides the fact that, hey, isn't it awesome that today you now know that Batman and Superman have had musicals, I also brought it up because uh, Batman the Musical is loosely tied to Tomster Vampire. Yeah, I mean, not only are they both uh, Jim Steinman, but, you know, there's a song that only shows up in the Broadway version of Tom's called Angels Arise. It's actually a very pretty little song that he was also kind of workshopping putting in the Batman musical. I think it was kind of like a, if it doesn't go into one, it goes into the other situation. But more to the point, the big Carpe Noctum, the big nightmare ballet in Act Two of Tom's de Vampira. The melody comes from a piece that, you know, like a lot of Jim Steinman stuff that he'd actually written like in the 60s and had been trying to put in a bunch of things ever since. But in this case, it's particularly relevant because a version of it that was both made into the Broadway version of the song and was also later recorded as just a regular album song by Meatloaf was actually written and put together to go on the Batman Forever soundtrack. (laughs) Which, um, it's very interesting when you realize that because on the one hand it has as it ended up in Tom's Vampira, there is a noticeable degree of, like, bat dance influence. (laughs) Um, But there's also some stings in there, music-wise, that I'm almost certain that they're supposed to be the, you know, like, an Adam West Batman style, you know, pow, biff, bam. The onomatopoeia sound. Yes, I couldn't think of the word. Yeah, which... For one thing, if you know anything about the tone of either Tomster Vampira or Jim Steinman's Batman musical, that is completely out of place. It is absolutely absurd. Yeah, Carpe Noctum is is really, it's probably like the most Tomster Vampira Tomster Vampira ever gets. Um, but the Batman musical is, if anything, even wilder than that. Um, there is a there's a demo that I, I almost feel like it should be the next TikTok challenge to try to sit through the demo of the Joker song, Wonderful Toys, which is Steinman himself trying very hard. Um, I honestly can't imagine how this version of the Joker was even supposed to work. I don't, I can't, it, he wrote it in such a way that honestly the only person I can imagine being cast in it is Andre the Shields. Ooh. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I've I've heard him do a demo of, you know, a song in a very similar vein for what ended up becoming Bad Out of Hell, the musical, um, back when it was more of a, you know, back... He'd been trying to write, like, this weird, you know, goth, vampire-ish, I don't know, Peter Pan for ages, and um, even though the character ended up being dropped by the time it became Bad Out of Hell, the musical, um, it, Andre de Shields did a demo as this, uh, this like, cyberpunk equivalent of Captain Hook. And you know what? He made it work. He kicked ass. Because I'm sure Andre he de did. Shields. He's Andre de Shields, and he can do anything. Right? <laughs> 
And, you know, and so that's kind of just when I finally made myself listen to the wonderful toys demo again, I was just thinking like, that is the only way I can imagine this working is if you put Andre de Shields in this, because otherwise this is absolutely unlistenable. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Something that I kind of dread uh, with the Hawkeye series, one last run around here is that, so we know that there's going to be some, uh, importance to the Captain America musical, and we know that all of the Avengers are going to be have be like have their Broadway actor counterparts. But we also know that Jeremy Renner can sing, and Haley Steinfeld can sing, and I'm just very curious to see are they going to like actually go there with the plot of like, oh no, the actor playing Hawkeye like broke his leg. He'll need like an understudy. Oh my god! And then god. the real Hawkeye says, "I know what to do." <laughs> I mean, I mean, honestly, I kind of feel like this is just like, it's a Hamilton joke. Like, I, I think <laughs> it's very obvious that this is supposed to be a Hamilton joke. Oh yeah. <laughs> You know, does that mean Loki will see me? You'll be back. Oh my god! I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it seemed especially obvious, and like, you know, they used the bridge at Pershing Square in front of Grand Central, that in a way that kind of resembles the scaffolding that gets used for most of Hamilton. There's the fact that you know most of the Avengers costumes are kind of made out of street clothes, which. Even though that's not what they do in Hamilton at all, that seems to be something that people insist is in there whenever they parody it. I love how they didn't even try with the Hulk. Like, he's just in a gray hoodie and sweatpants. Well, you know what? Because, that you know what? If they tried it, then it would have to be, like, you know, they would have to do that, like, King Kong the Musical style. Oh, which man. is a thing that <laughs> happened. I cannot emphasize this enough. That is a thing that happened. And we let like, it happen. I, the moment I heard that they were actually going to be doing a King Kong musical out here, it just immediately struck me as something that would be in, like, a 90s family live-action comedy. And oh my god, you're that, totally right! Yeah, yeah, no, no, I mean, and I could just immediately picture something where it's like, you know, eventually, you know, they're, they're, they used a really advanced puppet in the actual King Kong musical, and it was kind of impressionistic. You know, they didn't try to make it look too much like an actual, you know, giant ape, it was kind of represented one. Um, but, you know, I could immediately just picture the climax of some 90s children's movie, where, like, okay, I, I'm probably ripping on a simple wish here, because I know that the girl's dad I and that was a Broadway I immediately thought actor. of a simple wish. <laughs> but, okay, okay, so we're again going with the idea, okay, dad's a Broadway actor, and he's probably has, like, the standard, you know, evil gold-digging would-be stepmother. And all I could picture is that somehow she, you know, like, when she's getting her humiliating comeuppance at the end, she's actually, like, stuck in the ape's hand, and it's just, like, moving her back and, and like, oh my you know, and it's, the, it's you know, it, it's so easy to picture, you know, the kind of situation where you know that she has a perfectly good head of hair, but her, her costume wig falling off, and her having the wig cap on underneath is treated as being exactly as embarrassing, <laughs> and then, and then, you know, and then after, you know, she finally, like, you know, slides out of the hand with zero dignity is, and is arrested, like, you know, we eventually see a newspaper, 
a few days later that says monkey business in here, you know. You have that, thought that, about this much longer before we started thinking of this. I, I, I thought of this years ago and it all <laughs> came to me in an instant. Like that, that is what King Kong the musical oh, means to man. me. Okay. I guess as long as, I guess the, the final Broadway roundup to do is, um, this has nothing to do with anything, but apparently when Chicago reopened this week, there was a massive fight in the mezzanine during the final dance number. And I, you know what? New York fucking city, baby. Let's go Mets. Love the Mets. <laughs> okay. So. Broadway's back and so are we. Uh, and you know what else is back? The topic of our show. <laughs> So, we are not here to talk about monkey musicals. We are here to talk about the dark world, which I consider... Which, mm-hmm. Well, I was about to make a joke about how... Which got turned into a stage play itself later on oh, in yeah. the universe. Ah, <laughs> uh, so I consider Thor The Dark World to be a very misunderstood film. Like, I understand if you don't think it's the best the MCU has to offer, but you cannot tell me it is the worst the MCU has to offer. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, you know, there there are many flaws in this movie. And to some extent, I feel like it might be because it's kind of the last of a dying breed within the MCU. You know, it's... For one thing, I, I feel like it has one of the last truly generic villains in it. True. Yeah. And, and that's not, and you know what, and that's, that's, that's certainly not Christopher Eccleston's fault. Because oh, by I, no you know, means. Oh my god, this this movie is the, is the biggest waste of a Christopher Eccleston you will ever see. I mean, just in general, this movie is like the biggest waste of like the entire concept of Dark Elves, because they are just naturally awesome creatures, and like anyone who has played a D&D campaign will tell you, like, you can do so much with them, and like, you could... Uh, I was just disappointed because the art direction of Svartalfheim was just the definition of underwhelming. Like, I didn't get any impression about how these people lived. I didn't get any sense, real sense of, like, architecture or, like, any really, any really, like, dark elf culture. And it feels weird because, okay, uh, <laughs> right before this movie came out, I was, like, very inspired to, like, uh, write a fanfic that was a sequel to one I had already written of uh, about a year ago at the time. And when I found out Dark Elves were going to be like the villains, I did all my research on Svartalfheim and Norse mythology and like different video game representations. And I ended up having it be so much more detailed than anything that appeared in the film. You know, it's it's really an incredibly dropped ball. Like, like I, I would go so far as to say probably one of the worst dropped balls at least in the MCU um, possibly with the exception of I haven't seen it I know that the Taskmaster reveal upset a lot of people in Black Widow however I feel like they could have made that thematically work but according to my friend Anne they do absolutely nothing to make it thematically work 
And, you know, so that's probably actually the worst one, especially because regular comics uh, Taskmaster is a relatively well-known and very well-liked character. And, you know, and Malekith, in theory, should have really been another one of those weird bones that the Thor franchise likes to throw at people. That's another thing, because, like, Malekith is such a more, like, colorful, flamboyant well, character in the comics. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I mean, when I say drop ball here, I mean that, you know, one of the most interesting things about him in the comics is I would say about 80% of the time, he's he's in full-on fair folk mode. Oh, yeah. Like, like, that's a very intentional thing with this character. And on the one hand, I understand not wanting to do too much of a Loki repetition at this point. But, you know, you would think that they could have at least gone a little bit more Hellboy with this. Yes. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, like, that's, you know, it's it's just, it's... They, it really is one of the last times in the MCU when, like, when they're not just like backup minions, that you really have this level of truly generic uh, villains in this, mm-hmm. and we don't, you know, we don't really know anything about Malekith in this, and you know, and if anything, I think he's an interesting. You know, I know that there are a lot of people listening to this who probably think like okay yeah but Ronan the Accuser and okay look I think that MCU Ronan was a dropped ball but he at least contributes something thematic we know that Ronan we, we like we have a very specific reason to understand that Ronan is an extension of you know when Rocket says the movie's entire theme of like you know everybody's got dead people doesn't give you the, the right to make everybody else dead too you know, like, that's literally what's going on with this guy. And, you know, and we're introduced to him, you know, it's it's a very dark scene, so it might be hard to tell. But, like, you know, when we literally the first shot that you see of Ronan in Guardians of the Galaxy is him naked in a fetal position in a drug tank because he's been doing this for so long that his body is breaking down. They don't elaborate on that, but you can, when you see that image, you can kind of already tell that that's what's going on. And, you know, and, and it really is just, you know, you, you know just enough about this guy to understand him as a representative of, you know, revenge swelling up and just rotting somebody's soul. And, you know, to the point where all they do is inflict trauma on other people again and again and again. And so, so even with, you know, how kind of like, you know, they needed him to be the bad guy. So that's, you know, how they wrote him for that. That's still more characterization than they give Malekith. Yeah, pretty much the only real definition Malekith gives is basically to be served as a uh, contrast or foil to Thor and Odin. Because they do have, they at least have something interesting in pointing out that there really isn't a lot of difference between uh, Malekith and Odin in terms of like battle strategy and them willing to sacrifice their own people and they just do not care how many lives they had to put on the line and just to like save their own ass. Yeah, yeah, but at the same time, they just, you know, uh, there comes a certain point in here where it's just like, okay, so you notice that, but they don't do anything with it. Yeah, true. And it certainly doesn't make a point. Like, I mean, you know, 
as I said, you know, when you contrast him to Ronan, who I think is probably the best one to contrast him with, you know, you, you know that, you know, you can infer from what he says that Ronan is a war or orphan, you know, and that he's kind of been raised into this his entire life and it's completely fucked him up as a person, which, you know, when you see him in Captain Marvel before he's gone completely around the bend, like, you can already tell that there. But, you know, you can also tell that there was, like, a certain decline in this person. Whereas with Malekith, it's like, you know, you, you can tell that that's a situation. But also, you know, as you mentioned, he, he has no background. Yeah. There's and, and, and on top of that, you know, what little background that you get for the Dark Elves in this to begin with is, you know, you, you would think that they would do something, you know... Odin mentions that, you know, they, they predate light, essentially. And that's part of why they're, like, the way they are. And, but, you know, but, and you'd think that they would do something with the implications of, you know, yeah, Malekith might be a huge dick, but, you know, you'd think that they would be able to play at least some of the others, even if it was, like, literally just showing a family of them huddling together that, you know that would kind of imply that at this point they're kind of forced to live in a physical state that is agonizing to them. Yeah. And that, you know, and that, <laughs> that, and that you know, you know, you'd think that they could at least do it along the lines of, you know, some, you know, making it kind of analogous to, you know, vampires have to drink blood, you know, that kind of thing. But they never do. And the fact, and, you know, as much as this movie is really the first movie that goes to the point of, like, you know, kind of puncturing some of, you know, Odin's Asgardian propaganda and stuff, they never really take it that far to the point of understanding that, like, you know, if you take what he says at face value, they're in a really miserable position, the Dark Elves. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they, they're kind of a relic from, you know, eons ago that they, you know... This, the physical condition that they're forced to live in now is agonizing. And it kind of makes sense that for them, there's almost this, you know... You, you could have thought... They could even go for some kind of, like, almost Lovecraftian, like, you know... It's not even necessarily coming from malice, except in the case of Malekith, you know... They just want their fucking universe back the way that it was. Exactly, there's... And they don't... You know, there's there's so much potential there that they just don't do anything with. There's yeah, there's so much you could do. Like, uh, not to toot my own horn, but uh, how I uh, wrote them is originally all elves started off as light elves, and but them in particular, what really become the dark elves, they were just extremely gifted uh, with harnessing solar power to use its magic. And that uh, terrified Odin, thinking that they would easily overpower him. So he just decided, okay, you're really good with, like, solar-based magic. So just as a preventive measure against Asgard, I was going to completely, permanently block out your son. And they all had to, like, be forced to adapt to, like, new eternal darkness. You know, I think the most interesting idea behind that is that it kind of implies that, he, you know, that he, he kind of orked them, you know, the whole <laughs> thing with, you know, the whole thing, I, you know, I'm, I am nowhere near a Lord of the Rings expert, but one of the things that really stuck out to me is remembering that, um, 
the orcs are, are what happens when you torture and force to breed several generations of elves. That's right. Which is absolutely horrifying, I might, I might just say. Um, I do remember, and I don't know how legit this was, but I do remember at one point reading a draft script for this movie that added a prologue to it that fleshed out the whole, you know, first war with Svartalfheim a little bit more. And the thing that I thought was fascinating about this, although it's also the thing that makes me wonder how legit it was, is it showed what initially you took as just, you know, anonymous Asgardian warrior, you know, number 45 or whatever, eventually, like, busting in on Malekith's, like, palace or whatever, and slaughtering his family. And then, and then, you know, the person that you just saw do this in their armor gets called back and pulls off the helmet, and it's a young Odin. Ah. And then, on top of everything else, he's trying very hard to put, because it's his father, Bor, who pulls him back, and he's trying very hard to be like, do you, do you see what I just did? Like, I, I, I took care of his family, you know? And, you know, this is why I'm not sure if it was legit, but if it was, holy shit, why did they cut this? Right? They, well, but, but I haven't gotten to the best part of this yet, which is, you know, a boar basically just moving along with the battle plans and Odin standing back there and just saying, you know, a little desperately, I did it for you. Well, that's, like, the perfect thematic circle to, like, the rest of the movie, isn't it? Yeah, like, yeah, like, would that, honestly, like, what, if that was legit, why would they cut it? But at the same time, you know, I, considering how much the movies gradually seem to kind of be inclining toward, you know, the, the real issue with Loki is that he absorbed all of Odin's worst traits, that would have been an incredible incredibly powerful little moment to sneak in there. I don't know if maybe they maybe they cut that because they were already kind of realizing that this was going to become the Loki show before there was a Loki show. <laughs> you know, because that really would have centered him quite a lot. Like, you know, I, I think that, you know, given the average person who was showing up really pumped to see Thor the Dark World, they would have immediately made the connection of having him stand there looking back at his father and just saying a little desperately, I did it for you. Like, but then also, you know, that that would also have reflected a lot on how Odin immediately stops and realizes, oh, God, he's going for Frigga. True. Yeah. You know, if he was thinking of it in terms of having gone back and, you know, you know, the fact that he went out he of knows his way how to, to slaughter think like a killer. Malekith's family, he knows exactly what he's going to go after, especially because he doesn't have any young children. So, what was your theatrical viewing experience of this like, seeing it for the first time? Okay, so fun fact, this is the only one I actually dressed up for. Oh, me too! <laughs> yeah, I, um, I still have a plastic Mjolnir hanging from my doorknob right now. <laughs> that I actually got because of this, and at this point that has been part of so many casual Thor costumes. Like, oh, yeah. I have never not known where that Mjolnir is since I got it. It's pretty great. <laughs> um, I actually got it, like, in an after-Halloween sale at a spirit Halloween, and I'm I'm so glad that I have that. Nice. It's, it's full-size, it's plastic, 
but it looks it looks right. <laughs> it even has the little fake leather strap at the end, and also the hanging it from the doorknob. I have to admit that my habit of storing it there is directly inspired by this movie and his cute little hanging well, mirror wall moment. <laughs> So this was definitely my favorite uh, theater-going experience, watching this uh, in the movies for the first time. So uh, I was actually uh, asked to see this movie uh, by Toby, uh, both going in costume, uh, who, by the way, is the best male Loki cosplayer I have ever seen. Just, like, the screen accuracy it just never ceases to amaze me. And he went as Loki, and I went as Sif, and uh, the walking our way uh, to the theater, we were just like sort of like pseudo larping because like I had my sword prop, which I also got uh, at a discounted Halloween shop. <laughs> and uh, the whole time we were walking over to the theater, I was just like pretending like I was like guarding him, like he was my ward, making sure he didn't like start anything. And, well, uh, that's, uh, that's loaded. No. <laughs> oh, God damn it! That's, that's... Hmm. <laughs> Hindsight. <laughs> Good grief. Uh, but after seeing the movie, uh, as we were walking out, there was this little girl who, uh, of course, wanted to get close to us. And, uh, we both said hello, and Toby, in character as Loki, said, Oh, what pretty hair you have. Oh, I would love to have some of it for myself. Perhaps I'll cut it. And just, like, uh, instinctively, without even, like, thinking it through, I just instinctively put my sword up to his neck and said, You wouldn't dare. <laughs> God, you know, I, um... I helped him out on a couple of photo shoots out here um, at one point, and I, well, there are two stories from this that really stick in my head. Um, one was uh, the, the little girl thing that you mentioned reminded me um, of the, the little boy who was staring at him in abject fear, and he knelt down in front of him, and I'm not going to do the, the accent or anything, but just almost wheedlingly, just like, you don't think I'm a bad man, do you? <laughs> and the kid just kind of staring at him and finally just kind of shook his head because I guess because he wasn't like hurting him or anything at that point. And he clapped him on the shoulder and said, good, go tell your mother. <laughs> um, the other, the other one was the, was um, at the, at the New York City premiere of the Avengers, which was actually held at, it was part of the Tribeca uh, Film Festival. It was not a premiere premiere, it was more like a special showing for like first responders and stuff like that. You know, kind of a, you know, superheroes honoring real heroes mm -hmm. kind of deal. And um, for one thing, this, this was the most chaotic afternoon I have ever <laughs> experienced in like a fandom context or anything, because I mean, for one thing, Obviously, we couldn't all get into the screening, the whole little group that I was part of, but um, it turned out that most of the actors at this point had had to go to, like, four or five different premieres, so they didn't really want to stay and watch it either, which meant that while we were all just kind of hanging out outside, 
um, dealing with the fact that, that Toby in his Loki costume had just accidentally caused a minor car accident um, <laughs> because somebody was distracted. Um, of course, in character. While we're, all while we're all dealing with this, then I just hear somebody talking up like a ramp and I look up and it's Chris Hemsworth and I just start basically like I just freaked out right there and I just but I didn't want to make a big deal about it but unfortunately this meant that I was essentially having an anxiety attack and I ended up just kind of like quickly turning in a circle while just like muttering like Yosemite Sam oh, no. and then all of a sudden I realized what I was doing and I looked up and I saw that he was kind of looking down like what, what's going on down there and I looked up and I just kind of bolted and he just kept talking so you know so that was that was truly you know one of the best moments of my adult life obviously <laughs> But the real topper to this is that um, there's a McDonald's on, I, I think it's Chamber Street. Um, it's still there, by the way, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, it's right by Borough of Manhattan Community College. And I don't know what the situation was here. I don't even know exactly what they meant. But when we went in there, there were these two kids sitting in there, teenagers, except I, I feel like they had just been transported there from like the 80s i mean we're just complete 80s mall rats looking teenagers i don't know where they came from or how they got there <laughs> but you know just just straight up like you know real bill and ted hours here oh, is, what we're, is what we're getting at <laughs> and so and true to form they're both sitting there holding their skateboards and one of them finally just looks at toby and just goes dude did you come from medieval times <laughs> And the other one goes, "That's Loki, a fucking dipstick," and elbows him so hard he falls off of the he fell off of the seat. Oh my and like, God. and like for one thing, that might be the funniest thing I have ever witnessed in person. And afterward, I was just like, "I do you think that they meant like medieval times, as in the dinner theater in New Jersey, <laughs> or or did they think that he had traveled here?" from the middle ages like I, I i still don't know i feel like if i ever get to write any official mcu or you know even just you know 616 anything i have to put those guys in there oh you like, have to like, like i absolutely have to make them exist in universe that is that is the funniest thing i think i've ever witnessed just randomly in public <laughs> I, I think about that's Loki, you fucking dipstick, all the time. <laughs> uh, so we've been talking a lot about uh, some criticisms of this movie, but something that I really do love about this is, I think it's this is the best, the best looking of the Thor trilogy. Like it has the best lighting. I love the rich jewel tone color scheme. And there are just so many scenes that look like if John Stevens painted the cover art for Dio. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the big exception here, of course, is Fardalheim, but yeah, which is true. Fardalheim like, is, is the ultimate muddy CGI background. What is this? Where they <laughs> dropped, where they dropped the ball for Svartalfheim, they just excelled so beautifully in Asgard. Like, I just wanted to get lost in there, and I just, oh, I felt like oh, there's no, so As many... Asgard in this really does feel very, like, I mean, you get so much more of a sense of a culture, and I mean, you know, I noticed that in, this is the movie where you started really getting an idea of, in particular, how the women tend to dress, 
and have you know that very distinctive hairstyle that first you saw in Frigga. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot of that in there. It's also you know this is this is the movie that gave us Hall Fandral. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's Zachary Levi making us understand immediately that Fandral and Loki slept together. <laughs> I, I don't know how else I'm supposed to take the specific way that he's like needling him through this whole thing because I'm sorry that's that's not that's my brother that's my friend's weird brother needling going on there that's that's very clearly like bugging an ex oh yeah <laughs> like if, if they if they don't establish that at some point I think I'm gonna riot like oh, I, I don't even know if it's necessarily that I ship it so much as it's just like it, it happened, and I need somebody to admit it. Yes, just, like, to make sure we're not going insane. Like, we need to make it valid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it, it really comes off that way, and not only that, you know, there was a point when the comics very heavily implied that. So it's like, and, and it's so specifically Vandral. So, like, but, I mean, you know, Everybody else makes jabs about, like, you know, Loki's Loki-ness, but then I'm thinking about how this one just has him being like, oh, yeah, guess being in prison didn't make you any less graceful, and, like, what, what the hell is that supposed to mean? <laughs> oh, man. So, I definitely found it interesting, uh, watching this, how... Odin's lines uh, saying Loki brings chaos and destruction and death wherever he goes, like almost to the letter what Mobius tells him, you know? Yeah, yeah, except, you know, I, I feel like Mobius kind of has a little bit more of a right to that because, you know what, he's, he's not your fucking dad. True. I mean, I know he's written as a father figure, but you know what, in a lot of ways, Mobius is kind of the father figure that Loki needed but didn't have. Yeah, yeah, and on that subject, can we both agree that Odin is just a huge dick in this movie? Like, every single act he does is a dick move. Yeah, no, I, I think that probably this movie's most important contribution to, like, the entire franchise is this is the movie that starts really going, hey, have you considered that Odin is full of shit? Yeah, the thing is... I don't care what anyone says, I will always love this movie because it is the only film in the entire Thor trilogy in which every single character is 100% done with Odin shit. Thor is done with Odin shit, Loki's totally done with Odin shit, Frigga to an extent is done with Odin shit, Heimdall, Sif, Warriors 3, Jane, everyone. <laughs> Loki is in fact so done with his shit that he sticks him in an old folks. <laughs> Which, I'm sorry, that is still the funniest possible. Like, I I know that there are going to that you know when we get to our Ragnarok episode, which I'm really looking forward to. I have to admit because I I really do love that movie, but I understand the quibbles that are to be made with it. But I still think that that you know the twist ending of this movie turning out to be like and then I stuck him in an old folks home and I started a community theater to be incredibly funny oh yeah no I definitely think there's definitely some truth uh, to his character in those choices well, yeah no I mean it's it's definitely the funniest thing that they could have done and I also really like that you know 
how how did how do you suppose he even did that? Like, did he just like, you know, did he just like convenient Odin sleep him and then just pack him off and just show up probably faking an American accent? Like, what's going well, on? Well, you know, someone pointed out that one of the worst things of the MCU is so many of the best scenes happen off camera. Like, there are so it's... many important moments that would be so great to see, and they're just brushed off with a few lines of dialogue, or they happened in between movies. I mean, I feel like, and now I, I know that I'm kind of skipping ahead in this, but I feel like since it reflects back on this movie, that's, that's why I'm bringing this up. I, I do think that that's probably one of the points in Ragnarok where, you know, the fact that it's written by not just Taika Waititi, but, you know, Taika Waititi, creator of What We Do in the Shadows, really shows the most the idea of taking this thing that seemed incredibly sinister in context, and then it turns out that it's just like, no, no, he just did the most mundane, hey, get out of my fucking life <laughs> thing possible. Like, you know, like, how, how was he supposed to have done this? Did he, did he, you know, just set up a crate and a stick and, you know, and put, you know, a, a bowl of, you know, Odin chow underneath it? Like, what do you, what do you do here? Jesus. Jesus. You know, he, yeah. You know, especially in the time frame given, like, I, like, that's why I bring this up as regards this movie, because we know that, you know, he had time to die and then realized that he wasn't actually dying because I do think it's important to recognize that w during that scene he really thought he was dying. Oh, absolutely. Like, in universe, he thought he was dying. And it's played as a completely sincere death scene, and it seems to be kind of more like a oh, cool, I'm not dead. <laughs> oh, definitely. Moment. Yeah. So, yeah, was... you know, so then we're, we're supposed to assume that, you know, he Brody quests his way back to Asgard. <laughs> And, you know, while, while disguised as one of Odin's personal guards. And then he just shows up and is just like, you know, out of the way, old man. Loki time. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the time frame here, it like, you know, this entire battle going on in London. And then, you know, and meanwhile, this is what's going on back home. Like, it's, it's absurd. Oh, absolutely. How many times do I have to teach you this lesson, old man? Oh, Jesus! Actually, uh, you know what? I, I'm sorry. That, that's more of a hella. I, I should have saved that for the next episode. No, no. It's very... You definitely have a Spongebob quote strategy I respect. <laughs> I mean, uh, that, that's, that's a huge, you know... Spongebob quotes are an important part of posting. And and I think what and what are podcasts if not large posts? I mean, that's why Lil Nas X is so good at it, because he knows his Spongebob references. Oh, oh he is like the best there is in social media. Oh man. Oh my god, nobody is doing social media like Lil Nas X. No I just, one. <laughs> I, I am just constantly in awe of, of how good he is at and you have to imagine this with a capital P posting. Oh like and now for a little segue, because just like in the music video for Call Me By Your Name, we open at Loki uh, going to a trial in chained handcuffs. <laughs> <laughs> Which also works as, as, you know, circling all the way back to the SpongeBob references, 
because I don't know if you ever saw the screenshot that Lil Nas X posted of his, um, I guess, you know, he doesn't storyboard, but he was coming up with like a general outline of how he wanted the music video to go. And he actually included the shot of Patrick chained in the middle of an arena having peanuts thrown at him. I saw it was, that. Yes. Yes, that's that's his ref that was his point of reference for the trial scene at the beginning of the video for Montero. Oh my god. So, which and you know, if we really wanted to take this deeper, I'm pretty sure the Patrick thing was actually a reference to um to Bride of Frankenstein when they've got the monster I think it was Bride, where they've got the monster chained up and everybody's taunting him. <laughs> but this is I, I can't remember if it was Bride or if it was one of the it might have been Son of. I, I don't know, it's been a long time since I've seen since I've seen those movies. But yeah, circling back, you know, trial in heaven being completely chained up, except sometimes you don't get to go to hell and have sex with the devil. Sometimes you just end up in another glass box. <laughs> Uh, although, to be fair... for Loki, because I'm pretty sure he probably, at that point, would have rather been fucking Satan. He could have easily lap-danced his way out of a problem. (laughs) 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 He fucked his way into this mess, and by God, he's gonna fuck his way out of (laughs) it. Uh, you know, I could never hate this movie, because... We get 20 seconds of Thor shirtless watching himself. It added absolutely nothing of value to the plot. It did not reveal anything about the character. It is just pure lady fan service. And if you don't like this movie, you are wrong. <laughs> like, I love how a legit conflict we have is... Jane is kind of like Buffy trying to survive Earth after already going to heaven. And she just has this, like, huge depression kick in of, like, ever since meeting Thor, she cannot find the same level of attraction to any man back on Earth because her expectations are completely shot to hell. Even when I, you know, I'm sorry, I cannot remember the actor's name right now, but even when they went out of their way to have her date played by somebody who has been the leading man in how many sitcoms over there? (laughs) Like, also, I, I, I enjoy the completely arbitrary London setting of this. Oh, yeah. There's no reason for this to be set in London, and yet there we are. <laughs> no, but I liked it because I studied abroad in London. It was familiar to me. I'm like, oh, they're at this place I've been in. You know, it's it's going to be really interesting when we inevitably go to London, and you're going to be, like, running around the Greenwich uh, Naval Museum, just being, Maritime Museum, excuse me, just being like, this is where they filmed all this stuff in the dark world, and I'm just gonna be like, do you want to come and look at Fitzjames's fancy cup? Because it's right here. That is totally to gonna come, happen. Do you want to come? Do you want to come look at Fitzjames's pimp cup? Come on. <laughs> he, he 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 had a pimp cup. Okay, they gave it to him because he he rested because when, like a while before the expedition, because in real life Fitzjames was actually one of nature's Thors. He he actually, like, jumped in and swam upstream to save this dude from drowning for, like, two miles. And so, like, they gave him the keys to, I think it was Liverpool, and they also made him this incredibly fancy drinking goblet. 
And apparently he got kind of socially overwhelmed by the whole thing. He ended up kind of drinking to calm it and ended up dinging the cup anyway. <laughs> Which, I mean, doesn't that sound like a, doesn't that sound like a Thor thing? Like, I'm trying oh, to stay absolutely. on top of you. Does, does that not sound like a Thor thing? Do you think that Jane surviving an Infinity Stone inside her will directly lead her to becoming Thor in Love and Thunder? Because from what we've seen in Guardians of the Galaxy, like, it is very unlikely for anyone to survive getting that close to an Infinity Stone. Yeah, I mean, you know, you kind of need to have the power of friendship, and she was just, you know, in a garage. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's gra garages cannot be your friends. They, they cannot love you. <laughs> I'm trying... I, that was a really misguided riff on the whole parasocial relationships tweet. I am so sorry. <laughs> I, 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 I am not sending my best this week. Um, ladies and gentlemen at home, I am on my 14th work day in a row. I, which it turns out that's almost as bad as a 16 day coke bender in terms of like keeping your thoughts straight. So, um, I've never, I've never tried coke, but I imagine that it's like, oh, this is what it must be like if, if my brain also hated me. That's basically uh, it. Yeah. Yeah. That and so being punched I, in the nose. If, 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 if I seem particularly unfocused in this episode, that's why. That's why, and I just really have to hope that I can bring my A-game in time for Ragnarok. But you know what? This is a wild, sloppy-ass movie, and tonight I guess I'm a wild, sloppy <laughs> maker. Oh, God. You know... So, uh, how, how, about, how about Darcy's, like, one-movie love interest, sort of, that never shows up again? Oh, no, he was absolutely useless in this. I do not understand why he was written in. You but... know, I think it was probably just from a perspective of, okay... You love one Darcy. What about Darcy plus one? Like, but I it mean, doesn't work I... that way at all. <laughs> and well, okay, wasn't his act? Now that I think about it, wasn't his actual purpose something like because you know, like probably almost a way of justifying her continued presence because he actually is working in the same field. So if she's dating him, it makes sense for her to hang around him. Maybe. Like, because they do make it pretty clear in the first one that Darcy hanging out with and assisting Jane is kind of, like, she's just sort of there. Like, because that's not even her major. <laughs> Maybe that's what's going on here. I, I think this movie also, even though it still makes her part of the plot, it really does emphasize how much the, you know, making Jane an astrophysicist was kind of set dressing you know I feel like this entire thing could have worked just as well if she were a doctor like like a medical doctor Perhaps. I know that she started off as a nurse but then you know they ended up making her an astrophysicist because they thought that that would make her a better role model and I mean and it did give her in the first movie a reason to be chasing after Thor in the first place and to have encountered rather to have encountered him that wasn't contingent on Florence Nightingale syndrome. <laughs> but I feel like it kind of has gradually become less important. And also, for that matter, you know, I, I get why they do this, but also the MCU, with the exception of Claire Temple, it really, it, it really has a problem with considering nursing a lesser, um, 
a lesser career than being a doctor. Which, I mean, you know, because they also did that with Christine Palmer. Ah, uh, yeah. Who is also one of the night nurses in the comics. And it's just kind of like, hey, you know, it would, it would just be kind of nice if they didn't seem to automatically consider that a lesser career option. I'm just saying. <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe some of the writers are just aware of, you know, the the high school mean girl to nurse pipeline or something. I don't know. (laughs) So I definitely thought this movie's strongest points were uh, exploring the relationship between Thor and Loki. Uh, Just really having, uh, just like starting from this place of like shattered trust and like trying to rebuild that, just like depending almost entirely on the fact that they know each other so well by now. They... They're still family, and they're connected to these ties of family. And I just really felt that it did a good job uh, showing two adult siblings handle the loss of a parent very realistically, of just, like, them having so much grief and anger, and, of course, inevitably it's going to spill out and be misdirected at each other. And But, of course, like, them realizing, you know she wouldn't want to see us fight like this. And I definitely felt like uh, it has some of the most emotionally honest scenes of all the movies so far. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as I've mentioned before, I I do think that um, they do kind of redeem themselves for fridging Frigga by the fact that it continues to be meaningful and it's not just, oh, it's going to give them a sad for five minutes. Oh, yeah. You know, her, her absence haunts the rest of the franchise you know it and on the one hand you know i do think there's some criticism to be made of the fact that the character ends up becoming a bigger deal in death than she was in life as far as we're shown but at the same time it doesn't make her death feel nearly as cheap as it might have yeah it it doesn't you know it's not just an escalation. It, it actually becomes something that really hangs over the rest of the franchise. You know, the fact that you know, Loki in the series is basically mourning her already, even though in theory, he could go find her again. Mm-hmm. And for that matter, even though we don't even know if the mother in question was Frigga, and to be honest, I kind of doubt it was, you know, the fact that Sylvie doesn't even remember her mother is played up as, you know, similarly sad. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, have you found any new insight or interesting details that stick out at you now that you've seen this movie knowing the little remix it got in Avengers Endgame? I mean, part of me is just like, no, that's, that's a good, that's a good mom to not even question that he looks like an absolute mess and he gains like 60 pounds. <laughs> and I mean that very genuinely because she's just like, oh, honey, you haven't been doing well, have you? You know? And, and the fact that she immediately recognizes it as, you know, a depression thing. And, and I mean, and I say this as the world's biggest fat Thor stan. <laughs> I, I, I really... I wish they'd let him stay, you know, even if, even if some of it was, you know, supposed to have naturally slid off as he kind of, you know, feels up to taking care of himself again. 
I still wish that we were getting at least a little bit more, you know, if not fat Thor, like, you know, realistic strongman Thor would have been nice. Well, I'm sure Chris Hemsworth feels even more devastated that he had to wear a fat suit and not just, like, go back to eating carbs for a day. Yeah, honestly, just just let the man <laughs> let the man keep working out, but also let him eat carbs. And there you go. There's your Thor. <laughs> uh, and it's just... To this day, I still cannot imagine Jane interacting with Rocket Raccoon. Like, that's just something, like, I have to <laughs> see is it. What the crossover episode? Right? <laughs> <laughs> you can't just give us that image and not show it, Marvel. <laughs> so I know that by default, Jane comes from what could be classified as the Marvel movies that are fun to watch when you get high. But I'm still thinking about how she still feels about as grounded as a hat character. And how difficult it is to imagine her interacting with other very specifically these are movies you watch when you get high characters. I mean, in general, I think that that's probably one of the weaker things about the MCU is that, you know, to, to paraphrase somebody talking about a situation that tends to arise in, of all things, you know, terror fan fiction, if they just, like do a rescue AU where at least some of them get back to England. The whole, you know, we encountered a God and we're, we're just not going to talk about that again. Okay. <laughs> I, I think I actually literally responded to that tweet with this is Marvel. Every time they decide that they're going to make a gritty crime drama. <laughs> uh, we, we don't have time to unpack that right now. <laughs> Since this is still a, Loki series podcast uh, at the end of the day. What do you think of the timeline where Patty Jenkins would have directed this movie? God, I, I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, I, I do think that it might have been a little bit less dour. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, I've you know, I've seen Wonder Woman 1984 and I was just kind of like, wow, okay, that happened. Yep. <laughs> that, that sure as hell happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, I, you know what, this is, this is not a Wonder Woman 1984 podcast, so I'm just not going to go off on another tangent because I don't know if I'm going to be able to be funny during that <laughs> I it's mean, not even, it, it's not even that I hated it. It was just kind of like, Okay. <laughs> it's just like, like it's more of like you did you did so good the first time and you just just did not like you did not absorb any of that and take it with you into this one. <laughs> yeah, as as well as I, I guess the one thing I will say is that the whole oh we came up with a way to bring Steve Trevor back, oh this is actually just a way of like you know, telling you how to process grief. It's, it's like, I understand that from a storytelling perspective, and it's honestly but the kind Wanda of thing that, did it so much better! Well, I was gonna say, I feel like it would have worked, I, I feel like what they did with Steve Trevor in that movie, it would have really worked in a book. Hmm. Watching it play out in a movie is another matter. Okay. And it, 
And I think some of it is just because I think in a book series, you have a little bit more room to do the whole, you know, kind of grimly. I, I feel like in a book, it might not have necessarily felt so much like, you know, this is for you too, audience. It might have actually been a little bit more possible to flesh it out as as an exploration of grief. But you're also right that WandaVision did it a hell of a lot better. I mean, I do. I mean, I don't remember a lot of the details of her original plan for the movie, but I do know that uh, it would have been much more focused on the romance of Thor and Jane and really emphasize, like, but they're from two entirely different worlds. How are they going to make this work out? Yeah, which, I mean, it, it tries to, although I do think that the I do appreciate that in the final product with that being so downplayed it's really more just like they're from two different worlds and odin has a big fucking problem with that oh yeah like in the final pro everybody else is just kind of like oh hello human nice to meet you, <laughs> you know? i'm honestly so, so you're thor's so you're that human girl that thor likes so much nice to meet you here have some clothes <laughs> my goodness you're small I'm honestly so surprised just how downplayed they made the elephant in the room of, like, well, yeah, Odin isn't going to approve of this because clearly he doesn't want, like, a Midgard bastard running around as legit heir. Oh my god. Like, I'm serious. Yeah. Like, it's never fully stated, but there's always, like, they d there's always, like, the slightest, uh undertone that Odin definitely wants Thor to marry an Asgardian woman and have a pure Asgardian heir and the idea that someone who he clearly deems as an inferior race just is not in his plans. Which is honestly, you know, it's particularly kind of a dick move of Odin's considering that like, I know that the movies never clarify it, but I mean, the comics have always been pretty firm on the idea that, you know, Frigga's not Asgardian. I mean, she's not human, but, you know, she isn't she supposed to have been from Vanaheim? I'm not sure, maybe? Yeah, it's I'm not never... sure, yeah. Huh. I mean, I know that that's the case with her, with her comic counterpart. And on top of that, I mean, it, I actually, you know what, the... I know that I'm... I know that we're not supposed to talk about Ragnarok much in this episode, but there's so much in that movie that reflects back onto this one that it's almost a little hard to keep them separate in my head. And I just realized that, you know what, Frigga being from Vanaheim would also make a hell of a lot of sense with him just deciding to cover up the fact that he ever had another child. Interesting. Especially considering that if I understand the chronology correctly, Frigga is not Hela's mother, and she and Hela are actually about the same age. Hmm. Which, you know, would make sense with each of their actresses being about 50 when they filmed it. <laughs> so, what do you think is the best written Loki scene? The one that just, like, really uh, reflects his character in a way you think, like, was very uh, accurate? Well, is. I mean, the one that definitely has the most resonance now is, you know, really grim resonance at this point, actually, is the part where he's not even unfeelingly 
trying to tell Thor, like, you don't want to get too attached. This isn't going to work. Yeah. You're never going to be ready to lose her. Uh, speak. that reminds me, I saw someone on Tumblr, like, edit that clip to uh, Loki falling in love and then being betrayed by Sylvie. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, that was that was already an incredibly resonant moment, you know, because that was, I remember, you know, talking to like, you know, my, my role-playing board writing partner afterward. And I'm like, okay, so there's a scene in this movie that gave me some chills because it almost felt like it could have been him addressing like this alternate self. I mean, mean, and even being able to say like, yeah, addressing his alternate self, it's like, Oh boy, did we have a storm coming where that was concerned. <laughs> but that, I mean, that scene is very eerie, almost in light of the series, which I know it's not actually because they probably took that scene into account. That, you know, it, it, it does. And you know, the interesting thing is, though, that considering how at this point, I, I think you could make an argument that even though they're only a couple of months apart, technically, I think that Loki in this movie is actually kind of a significantly more hardened person than he is than than the variant in the TV show, and I think oh, yeah. that really is. I, I think that that does come a lot from having a much stronger sense of his family just having thrown him in the trash. Oh no, that absolutely shows through in his acting, of just like oh, the whole point of the Dark World is this is Loki at his lowest point. Because, like, the first Thor movie was Thor at his lowest point and then pretty much being forced to go through character development and be a better person. And this one is all about Loki taking that journey of, like, suffering a deep loss and wounded pride and him deciding to uh, learn to be selfless from that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, I mentioned that, that Frigga's death really does, in her absence really does haunt the rest of the franchise but I think that that's kind of this movie's secret is that this movie kind of haunts the whole rest of the franchise even though it's kind of the one that most people don't really feel much of an urge to watch again mm-hmm. I think one of the most interesting parts of that scene though and how it goes along with how hardened he is in this is that you know this is a version of him that has basically come to the conclusion of it's better not to let yourself love because it's just going to end up hurting you in the end. And that's actually not something that, you know, the variant that we follow in the movie has gotten to, but it's certainly something that Sylvie's gotten to. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's, that's kind of her whole thing, you know, at that point. And so it's very interesting to see that, like, you know, it, it does kind of go back into the idea of, of them, you know, it's actually one of the things that is most convincing of them having had a similar baseline at some point, because it only takes a relative little amount of anything comparable to what she's gone through to push him into a similarly cy- cynical position. But on the other hand, you know, that hasn't happened with, uh, you know, the variant version of him who is still significantly more, I guess, soft and exposed, almost, I want to say. He hasn't fully had a chance to harden himself up, and what little bit of a brittle shell he's built up is pretty much demolished in the first episode. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it would... There's just such a difference between, like... With, there's such a difference of uh, him uh, being in prison when he gets news of his mother's death and him seeing that unfold uh, on a screen in front of him. Oh, God, yeah. Just and that the fact of that, mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing is, is that the fact that he internalizes the guilt for that so quickly, whereas I, I feel like in several other points in his in his timeline... You know, if you'd shown him something like that, but he hadn't actually done it yet, he probably would have been like, well, I didn't do that. You know, that mm-hmm. was that was another me. And, you know, show him doesn't have any problem with that. I mean, he has a problem. You know what I mean? Though. Oh, yeah. He he just immediately takes it in as, oh, God, I did that. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so any final thoughts about this movie? You know, this is, I have to admit, though, that this is the movie, more so even than the first one, that feels really bitter in light of them establishing eventually that Loki's a better boyfriend. And we are burdened with glorious podcasts. (laughs) Because, oh my god, there's, you know, and I know that they end up, you know, treating the on-again, off-again thing as being, you know kind of a non-sequitur in the next movie, you know, sorry Jane dumped you, but at this point, you know, I have to admit, thinking about it more completely, it seems like, yeah, that, that does seem like something that would happen at this point, like, that's, that's just kind of what their relationship is going to end up being, but it does add this weird sort of pall to the romance in this one, especially the, you know, him coming back in the end, and you know, them having this big sweeping kiss that's particularly big and sweeping because they actually used Chris Hemsworth's wife. Yes, as I love Jane's that bit of trivia. <laughs> yeah, no, which which explains why the kiss is, you know, so perfect as it is. And then it's just like and yeah, then they broke up again for a while. And it turned out, meanwhile, that this alternate version of his shitty little brother is just running around ready to just, like, you know, walk through endless universes to find the woman he loves. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, this movie definitely had uh, some lost potential that I feel like could have been so much more, but for what it lacks, it gets so much right uh, in terms of character relations and art direction and just, like, an overall, like, mood. And for that, I'll always like it. I, I can't really, like, hate on this movie, and I'll always be one of its few defenders. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I certainly don't think it's, like, a terrible movie or anything. I just see it as a deeply flawed movie. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so next time, we will head to Ragnarok. Uh, but until then, uh, I am Maureen. I'm Megan. And we are still burdened with glorious podcast. Good night, everybody.